Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hello everyone, today we are going to be talking about Mosiah 26. In our episode on Mosiah 25, I really tried to paint the picture of a society that still seems like it's in the honeymoon phase of a brand new era that nobody really understands yet. There's this story from the classic movie The Magnificent Seven that I think might be useful here in understanding kind of the time period that they're in. The context of this story is that a group of seven men are hired to protect a town from bandits that are taking all of its resources. As they prepare, Steve McQueen's character tells this story of a guy he knew who fell off a tall building, and people in the building could hear him say, so far so good, each time he fell past another floor of the building. The story is so good that we don't even need to hear the end of it. We all recognize the point. The fallen guy seems to have no sense of where his life is taking him, but he's having a pretty good time falling in the meantime. Remember, this is how the last verse of chapter 25 reads, And they were called the people of God, and the Lord did pour out his spirit upon them, and they were blessed and prospered in the land. If we listen closely, we might be able to hear the Nephite people say, So far, so good. Another way to think about the new era of Nephite civilization is in terms of fracture points. These are the points most likely to break when put under pressure. Even during times of prosperity, there are fracture points that exist in any society but they are kind of harder to see during prosperity. Well, actually, it's not that they're harder to see. It's that people tend to actively avoid seeing them, in part because it suggests that that prosperity is tenuous. Think about King Noah's people. Abinadi comes along trying to call attention to the fracture points of society, and people get mad at him for being negative. The priests even imply that messengers of God aren't supposed to talk about such things, but only bring glad tidings. We hear similar objections today when religion is used to point out society's weak points. So what are the fracture points of the new Nephite society? Well, you can pick your favorite one. We have an ethnically diverse community. It's multilingual. The minority population has ruling power. The kingdom itself has only been around for a generation or so. Their lands border an enemy population currently being poisoned by disaffected Nephites. The Nephites have just received a large population of refugees, and one of the refugee groups has introduced a brand new extra-governmental religious community that has exploded onto the scene. Oh yeah, and Nephites tend to see prosperity as a sign of divine favor, often leading to arrogance and a destructive sense of superiority. But, so far so good. Alright, let's get into chapter 26 with verses 1 through 6. It could be that some time has passed, at least a few years, because we are introduced to the rising generation that could not understand the words of King Benjamin being little children at the time he spake unto his people. Considering the fact that Benjamin spoke about three years before the arrival of the people of Limhi and the people of Alma, it's safe to assume that these little children have had some time to get a little older. Mormon says that they did not believe in the tradition of their fathers. They did not believe what had been said concerning the resurrection of the dead. Neither did they believe concerning the coming of Christ. Remember that the church is a community centered around these very beliefs, and it's a commitment to those beliefs that enables the type of selfless love and service to others that 
binds that community together. The resurrection is the logic that moves through every function of the church. So it makes perfect sense that this rising generation could not understand the word of God and that their hearts were hardened and they would not be baptized, neither would they join the church. And they were a separate people as to their faith and remained so ever after, even in the carnal and sinful state, for they would not call upon the Lord their God. Uh Uh-oh, we're starting to see some cracks. That might actually be an understatement. This is very nearly a clean break. Mormon says that they were considered a separate people as to their faith, but, and I'm adding in this part, not as to their citizenship. So you can be a Nephite and not a member of the church. They started out small, but began to grow. People even started leaving the church to join this group. This is one generation resisting the other generation, but it's no longer as simple as they were too young to remember King Benjamin's words. This is becoming a movement, and the church begins to respond by admonishing those members who begin to participate. That is, the church sought to correct them. Moving on to verses 7 through 33, this is all new to the church. Alma and his people had 30 plus years of peace in the land of Elam, and now Alma's needing to navigate through some unknown terrain. Here we get a sense of the structure of the church. We know that there are at least seven localized communities known as churches. And each community is led by priests who oversee teachers who are all ordained by Alma. Alma is the high priest, and he is granted autonomy by Mosiah the king. So the local leaders bring these members of the church who are starting to commit all kinds of sin before Alma, and there's a sort of trial that happens here. I wonder if at this point Alma has flashbacks to his time as a priest in Noah's court when Abinadi was put on trial. Alma has resisted being put in a similar position again and again. He didn't want to become the king over the people of Helam. He wanted them to treat everyone as equal and not to depend too heavily on structures of power. But now the church is huge and not as unified. What will he do? Mormon tells us Alma was troubled in his spirit and caused that they should be brought before the king. So what's he do? He punts. And that's not an insult to Alma. In fact, I love that he punts. In my mind, he's so hesitant to repeat the mistakes of the past that his first reaction is to reject the role of judge. He doesn't want the power. There's another dimension to this decision, though, beyond just Alma's personal experience. They live in a kingdom where the laws are based on the law of Moses. So the nation's laws are religious laws, and religion is supposed to be Alma's responsibility. But there are also civic laws, which are Mosiah's responsibility. But the king is also a religious leader since he grants Alma authority. You can see the confusion. Anyways, Alma says to Mosiah, Behold, here are many whom we have brought before thee, who are accused of their brethren, yea, and they have been taken in diverse iniquities, and they do not repent of their iniquities. Therefore, we have brought them before thee, that thou mayest judge them according to their crimes. Notice that Alma categorizes their conduct as crimes. And what does Mosiah say in response? I judge them not, therefore I deliver them into thy hands to be judged. This is becoming a bit of a crisis. What we see here are competing authorities, and neither wants to overstep the bounds of the other, and they don't know what to do about it. So Alma again, troubled, and not wanting to offend God, pours out his whole soul to God. You know, there's a moment for empathy here. I promise you that there were Nephites who, at the very moment of Alma pouring out his whole soul, were criticizing Alma. 
they really aren't that different from us in our day. I am naturally suspicious of people in positions of power, including the church. Partly, this is a suspicion shared by many in my generation, but it's also just how I'm wired. But at the same time, I have a huge desire to sustain the leaders of the church. I really do believe the Lord calls people into those positions. I've gotten better at checking my reflex to criticize, but it's still there. Here's an example of how my brain works through these questions of leadership. Let's take President Nelson. Before he was called as president of the church, I really didn't have strong feelings about him one way or the other. But he's been a dynamic president since being called. It's difficult not to have strong feelings now, positively or negatively. There have been changes made during his time as president that people have been pretty critical of. Right now I'm thinking specifically of the sidelining of the term Mormon. I have ancestors who were literally driven out of the United States by hostile state and federal governments, all while being called Mormons. There's a part of me that wants to honor those ancestors by taking that name as well. But theologically, I get what President Nelson has taught. The scriptures are pretty clear that there's no other name under heaven whereby man can be saved, not even if it's to honor my ancestors. And what's more, I've been in many interreligious conversations where the other person refused to recognize my faith in Christ and used the term Mormon to attempt to distance the church from that faith in Christ. So how do I work this out in my own head and heart? One of the things I do is I pay attention when President Nelson talks. And the question that's always on my mind is, does he really believe what he's saying? Or is this all just a show that he's putting on? And to be honest, I've never gotten the sense from him that this is an act. I really think that he believes. Setting aside the question of whether it's true or not, I believe that President Nelson believes. So that means that it's not him who needs to be interrogated by my suspicion. I have to direct it at my own life. Do I really believe it? Do I believe it enough to put in the work, studying, meditating, praying, and doing it all with humility? When I'm quick to critique, am I subjecting my own thinking to the same critical lens? Is there a possibility that President Nelson knows something about this work that I don't? These are the types of questions that I grapple with. And by putting in the work, I get my own answers. So I've tried to change how I talk about the church and its members. I've tried to center my language on Jesus Christ. And even when I don't, it's still on my mind. It's a way of always remembering him. And that has nothing to do with President Nelson. That's my covenant that I've made. And this change has helped me in small ways to do that. Getting back to Alma's predicament, I hope the Nephites knew that Alma was pouring out his whole soul in prayer and I hope they remembered that as they were grappling with their own criticisms. Personally, I believe President Nelson when he says that he pours out his soul soul in prayer. The Lord answers Alma's prayers, and we get what might be our only recorded revelation from Alma. And this revelation begins with the Lord sharing some beatitudes or blessings with Alma and the church. Blessed art thou, Alma, he says, and blessed are they who were baptized in the waters of Mormon. Thou art blessed because of thy exceeding faith in the words alone of my servant Abinadi. And blessed are they because of their exceeding faith in the words alone which thou hast spoken unto them. And blessed art thou because thou hast established a church among this people. And they shall be established, and they shall be my people. Yea, blessed is this people who are willing to bear my name. For in my name shall they be called, and they are mine, 
These words must have immediately brought comfort to Alma. If my interpretation was right and part of his hesitancy to step into the role of judge had to do with his role in Abinadi's trial, the Lord immediately puts that to rest and compares Alma directly to Abinadi. These words also make me think of an important scripture found in Jeremiah 31. Remember, Lehi was a contemporary of Jeremiah. The scripture reads, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, but my covenant, which covenant they break, although I was an husband to them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The way the Lord claims his people in both of these scriptures, the Beatitudes given to Alma and the covenant in Jeremiah, sounds so similar. And to this people, his people, he promises renewal community, forgiveness, and transformation. The very first message that Alma gets in this troubling time is, you are still my people, and that means something. The Lord has work for Alma to do. He is to be the shepherd that gathers the Lord's sheep, and whoever the church receives, the Lord will receive. Sometimes when the Lord speaks in the Book of Mormon, it sounds a little Old Testament-y, but this revelation sounds very much like Jesus. He's already started with some unique beatitudes, just as in the Sermon on the Mount. He's now comparing his people to sheep who will hear his voice, just like in John 10. He promises to take upon him the sins of the world, like the Lamb of God does in John 1. There are multiple similarities to Matthew 25, which is interesting because Benjamin's speech also has similarities to Matthew 25, which has the parable of the ten virgins and the sheep and the goats. All of these references deserve to be explored as part of Jesus' words to Alma and the church. I encourage you to go slowly through this chapter. Every line of this revelation is a gem. His point, though, is to guide Alma in the problem that he's currently facing. So after teaching him about baptism and gathering and judgment and shepherding, he says, therefore. Now, therefore and wherefore are important words in the scriptures. They mean we're about to get to the point. Therefore, I say unto you, that he that will not hear my voice, the same ye shall not receive into my church. For him will I not receive at the last day. In one of President Nelson's first talks to the church as the president of the church, he taught, in the coming days it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, and comforting and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. More recently, President Nelson has challenged us to hear him. Anything that we do outwardly in the church has to be grounded in our hearing the voice of the Lord. I told you about how I am naturally suspicious of leaders, but when I connect the direction coming from leaders with the confirmation through the Spirit, that suspicion isn't as much a factor. Cycling back a little, if hearing the voice of the Lord is fundamental to being a part of the church, it's interesting that one of the distinguishing traits of this rising generation who doesn't believe is that they would not call upon the Lord their God. That's work that nobody else can do for us. 
we have to do it ourselves. We have to put in the work to hear the voice of the Lord in our lives. Alma is given another, therefore, by the Lord. He's commanded to go and fill the role of judge, and he's given guidance on how to judge. If the person confesses their sins and repents, changes sincerely, Alma has been given the go-ahead to forgive them, and the Lord will also forgive them. The Lord then gives this amazing little truth that all of us need to remember. And as often as my people repent, will I forgive them their trespasses against me. We don't run out of repentance points. We are all beggars, and much of the work of this life is the work of repenting, turning toward the Lord in incremental ways until we can be eye to eye. The church is also tasked with forgiveness here, but it should be clear that what we're talking about here is not apologizing or just feeling bad. It's change. We too often complete apology and repentance, and they aren't the same thing, and the Lord wants to make that clear. Whoever will not repent of his sins, that is, change, live differently, the same shall not be numbered among my people, and this shall be observed from this time forward. Does that sound harsh? Well, Alma's been tasked with being the shepherd, and the sheep depend on the shepherd for protection. Alma records and follows the word of the Lord, and it's by revelation that these two flawed leaders, Mosiah and Alma, navigate their way through this crisis. Mormon tells us, And it came to pass that Alma did regulate all the affairs of the church, and they began again to have peace and to prosper exceedingly in the affairs of the church, walking circumspectly before God, receiving many and baptizing many. And now these things did Alma and his fellow laborers who were over the church, walking in all diligence, teaching the word of God in all things, suffering all manner of afflictions, being persecuted by all those who did not belong to the church. And they did admonish their brethren, and they were also admonished, everyone by the word of God, according to his sins, or to the sins which he had committed, being commanded by God to pray without ceasing and to give thanks in all things. If we aren't careful, we'll breeze through these words and think all is well again among the Nephites. But that's not the case. The church is still experiencing persecution. But remember, for many, this ain't their first rodeo. They know that their circumstances don't determine their experience. They had to learn it the hard way in the land of Helam. And the church here makes a habit of not getting too comfortable with their own sense of righteousness, which can be difficult when you have people blatantly attacking you. They are diligent. They teach the word. They suffer together. They correct one another when necessary. And they practice prayer without ceasing and gratitude in all things. There's no room to just settle in as the chosen ones here. Remember, this community is built on the belief that there is power in the suffering lamb and in his ability to deliver. One of the incredible privileges that we have as readers is the ability to look forward. The church in Alma's day didn't have that privilege. They had to be concerned with facing their pressing challenges with gratitude. But we can turn the page and see that this mess of persecution actually leads to the creation of perhaps the greatest missionary force in all of the Book of Mormon. We'll see how the Lord's grace can take an unsolvable crisis and through revelation and patience and trial and miracles, it can turn it into a transformative solution. We'll talk to you next time. 
Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Thank you.